I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. To learn more about Before, visit knowbefore.com. Roger, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and everyone else listening in. Absolutely. And to kick off the new year with this episode in 2023, really interesting topic to start off on is the the quantum break that perhaps just happened. I saw a couple articles that you shared on LinkedIn, and then you also wrote an article about it. Your headline for your article is, has the quantum break just happened? Question mark. And I guess I'd like to ask you that question and then anything else you'd like to add and share. Yeah, sure. So to give people a background that maybe are not familiar with it, quantum computers, which use the the properties of quantum physics, which is really all physics, but it's different than our traditional, what's called classical computers, which kind of work on this binary, maybe on the electron level. Quantum computers work on the things that make up electrons or a photon or something like that. But we've known since a guy named Peter Shore created this algorithm, now known as Shor's algorithm in 1994, Peter Shore said, hey, if we had quantum computers, which we didn't have at the time, they could essentially break today's modern asymmetric encryption. Asymmetric encryption is public-private key encryption, where you get one key that you keep secret, and you can give everybody else your public key, and it can be used to authenticate stuff that you send, or it can be used to encrypt stuff to you. It's really the backbone of most of our security today. Since about 1976, 1977, 1976, Whitfield, Diffie, Merkel created the first public key crypto, and then RSA quickly followed thereafter. And so today, all of us and every electronic device you have, anything with a computer chip in it uses some sort of asymmetric encryption are part of it. Usually you'll hear it set as RSA or Diffie-Hellman or elliptic curve cryptography. Those are the three main asymmetric algorithms, but they basically make 90% of everything we do work. It's how the internet works. Anytime you see HTTPS, that means it's using the TLS transport layer security protocol, which is using RSA or Diffie-Hellman, or could be using elliptic curve cryptography, ECC. Your Wi-Fi works that way. It's the way your computer turns on and validates itself. It's the way that you download software. It's the way that you log in. I mean, literally, these asymmetric keys are used everywhere. The opposite type of encryption is known as symmetric encryption, the most popular type being called AES or Advanced Encryption Standard. That uses the same key to encrypt and decrypt. Even the keys for symmetric encryption, which is used to encrypt data, is transported using asymmetric encryption. So again, our traditional today asymmetric encryption probably is involved in protecting 90% of what we do. Well, in 1994, Peter Shore said, hey, if we had quantum computers, which we didn't have at the time, I would be able to, or we could quickly factor large prime numbers or integers, which are the things that are kind of used to create this traditional asymmetric encryption. And so ever since 1994, we knew that once we got what's known today as sufficiently capable quantum computers, then we would be able to, then today's traditional encryption that we all use would utterly be broken. So we've known since 1994 that this was a possibility. Again, we didn't have quantum computers at the time, but in 1999, someone created the first 
quantum computer. And today there are literally hundreds of very basic rudimentary quantum computers around the world. And the entire world, probably led by the United States and China, are trying to compete to see if they can get sufficiently capable quantum computers that can crack today's traditional asymmetric encryption. And it's been a race, literally tens of billions of dollars are being spent on it each year. Each nation or intelligence agencies racing to be the one that can read the other person's secrets and that sort of stuff. Shor's algorithm though said that the number of qubits, quantum bits, the number of qubits that a computer had to be to be sufficiently capable would be basically double the number of bits of the asymmetric key you were trying to break plus a couple for management. So if you had a 2048-bit key that you're trying to crack, you would need a sufficiently capable quantum computer with 4,096 plus a couple qubits of stable qubits. So we've known that once a sufficiently capable quantum computer got to about 4,000 and, you know, 4,100 qubits, we would have this long, you know, sought after sufficiently capable quantum computer. But the key is those qubits had to be stable. And so far, we've not been very good at making stable qubits. So again, we we're saying that in order for Shor's algorithm to kind of work, you needed at least 4,100 stable qubits. Well, the quantum computers we know about today, just publicly, the number of qubits, they're actually, most of them are under 100 you probably have a few that are over 100. And although it's been announced this year by IBM and a handful of other companies that they expect to have hundreds to thousands of qubits this year. So again, IBM's announcing that they're gonna have a thousand qubit computer this year. There's lots of other companies that are going to match that or be somewhere around that. So we suspect that we're gonna have thousands of qubits this year. But the problem is, is most of those qubits aren't stable. And in order for Shor's algorithm to work, you had to have this 4,100 stable qubits. Well, the qubits we have today are not stable at all. They're unstable. They are error prone. And so in order to make a single stable qubit, so let's suppose you have a, a quantum computer that has 100 qubits. If there are 100 unstable qubits, which is what we mostly have today, you would have to make anywhere from thousands to tens of thousands to a million what's called ancillary qubits. So qubits just like it, but they're really made for error correction. So in order to have one stable qubit, you might have to have tens of thousands to a million ancillary qubits, which means that a computer that has 100 qubits really is not useful at all. Until we got around hundreds of thousands to millions of qubits, we really didn't have to worry about Shor's algorithm or if we could make more stable qubits. And let me say, every manufacturer has been trying to make more stable qubits or qubits that would say stable long enough to complete a calculation. That has really been the holy grail of what the quantum computer world is trying to do. One or the other, it's either trying to make a lot more stable qubits, because again, you get to 4100, you start breaking most of today's asymmetric encryption, or if you have unstable, what they call large scale noisy, quantum computers, then you have to have hundreds of thousands to millions of qubits. So since today's computers only have, let's say, maybe over 100 and maybe getting to 1,000 this year, most people haven't worried about that quantum break where sufficiently capable quantum computers can do what Shore said. Matter of fact, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, has said that you really don't have to be prepared for the quantum break or what's called the post-quantum period till 2033. 
2035, which I've ridden a couple of times. I think telling people that they need to get on a problem that's 10 years away, that's in this to saying you need to start preparing now, but that, that problem's 10 years away. Like who's going to work on a problem that's 10 years away? Again, I think it's negligent, even if it was to be 10 years away, because nobody's working on a problem 10 years from now because they're trying to fight ransomware and social engineering and get their patching right and stop password stealing Trojans and insider. Like there's so much everybody else is dealing with that are threats today that go into your CEO and go, hey, we need to spend 100,000 or a couple million bucks to fight this quantum threat 10 years from now. You know, it's like trying to fight global warming you know, or the warming of the oceans. Good luck. Humans don't do a good job focusing on problems 10 years or further away, you know, but there hasn't been this need of, okay, we're, you know, the encryption is going to be broken tomorrow. Although I have written for years now, I wrote a book on this quantum break. It's called cryptography is called cryptography apocalypse. And it just talks about the day when somebody finally announces that we have a sufficiently capable quantum computer, all of us, all organizations are going to be in this massive emergency Y2K-like project to get all our computers and devices upgraded to what's called post-quantum encryption or post-quantum cryptography, which means quantum resistant, that it isn't susceptible to quantum attacks. And I've been speculating since that in 2018, when I wrote that book, 2018, 2019, that I think there's a 15% chance that we already have sufficiently capable quantum computers. The intelligence agencies have it, either China or the NSA or something have it, but they're not telling us. But I only give that maybe a 15% chance. Let me say most people in the quantum computing field give it a 0% chance of being true or maybe a 1% chance of being true. But if you were to ask most quantum computer experts, when do you think we're going to have sufficiently capable quantum computers? Almost all of them would say in less than 10 years around 10 years, there would be a lot that would say within five years. And then I think if you queried any of them and say, hey, if it happened tomorrow, would that be shocking? Most of them, it wouldn't. I mean, so that's where we are today is that the quantum break is so near that maybe at most it's 10 years out, but it wouldn't surprise anybody if it happened tomorrow. Well, what happened the last week of 2020 is a Chinese team, and it's full of really uh, a lot of Chinese quantum luminaries. The two biggest countries doing the most on quantum computing is China and the United States. And China, quantum is really a subject of national pride. In China, you can go up to the average citizen and ask about quantum, and they'll know what you're talking about here. Almost no one's heard of quantum, right? Even a lot of the people hearing my voice right now have never heard of this quantum problem. But in China, everybody's heard of the quantum problem. There's even a kind of a Chinese father of quantum computers there. And the China, they're really on the cutting edge of quantum. They, they tend to focus a little bit more on quantum networking, creating quantum networks that are protected by quantum than quantum computers. But they're also doing quantum computers. They're involved in projects all around the world. They're spending billions of dollars a year. It's a point of national pride. And again, a billion dollars goes about seven times further than a billion dollars in America. But the two countries that are kind of fighting it out, have you, would be the United States and China to see who can get to sufficiently capable quantum computers first. Not only to break encryption, but just to use it to do all the fantastic, wonderful things that quantum computers are going to bring us, which quantum computers are going to bring us all kinds of fantastic inventions and services that we cannot even imagine today. Well, on December, I think it was December 22nd, 2020, 
2022. So the, the last week or so of 2022, a talented Chinese team announced that they think that they've created a new algorithm that can break today's traditional encryption, asymmetric encryption, with just 372 qubits, and those qubits can be noisy. So this was literally a come-to-Jesus moment or an oh-my-God moment. We, we actually don't know if what the Chinese are saying is true. They made a very detailed white paper, and the math and stuff is way above my head, but my friends that understand it a little bit better at least say that when they look at the paper, it seems detailed, complete, and promising. The Chinese didn't just make a theory. They actually used the algorithm on a 10-qubit computer to see if it would work on, I forget, I think it was like a 48-bit number digit, and it worked. So their theory, they, they not only had a theory, they then put it into practice, but they didn't have a 372-qubit computer to see if it could really break most of today's encryption. But that's where we are today. China, with like a dozen luminary Chinese quantum scientists, and again, if this paper was not true, this would be huge, huge embarrassment to China. But the reason why no one's sure if this is the case, what, have they been able to create a quantum algorithm that needs sufficiently less qubits and they can be noisy, is that the way that they came about it. A couple of months ago, another person, I don't know his nationality, Schnorr, I think is, is, is how you say his name, S-C-H-N-O. RR, I think I'm saying that right. This guy presented a paper showing that he could crack these encryption equations that quantum's trying to factor. Well, he said, I can do it using classical computers. So this guy published this paper saying, I can actually factor 2048-bit RSA using classical traditional computers. And this would be incredibly revolutionary if it was true. But when people and critics reviewed his paper, they found that he'd made a flaw and what he said he could do, he couldn't do. And so it was immediately globally discredited. That guy had egg on his face and very discredited. And the problem with this guy's paper was what he said kind of worked and it worked for smaller integers. But as you went to scale up to 2048-bit integers, it failed. So it seemed promising, but then it had a logic flaw and essentially it failed as you scaled up to the sizes that you needed to break today's encryption. Well, the Chinese team said that they saw that paper, saw the flaw, and they figured out the, that if they used a quantum computer, a small, noisy quantum computer, they could fix the part that was broken in that guy's paper. So the Chinese paper postulate is that we saw this guy's math, and let me say most of it's classical. What the Chinese paper team is proposing is that they can break most of it using traditional classical computers, just like the original guy said, but the part where that guy's paper fell apart, or that guy's theory, that guy's you know algorithm fell apart, they fixed it with a small quantum computer, noisy quantum computer, and so we fixed it. So you really have two camps. You have a lot of people that go, hey, what the Chinese have done here looks really, really promising, and we just need to verify. We really just need, really, the reality is no one's going to believe it until someone gets a, you know, a 372-qubit computer and then tries their algorithm. Nobody cares until that is done. 
And then you have this other side that says, listen, the Chinese method is based upon a discredited paper that failed to scale. So the they believe that China ran their algorithm on a 10 qubit computer and it worked, but they have a feeling, a strong feeling that it's going to fail as it goes to scale up, just as the underlying paper that it's based upon failed as it scaled up. But here's the big if, is that if it's right, if this Chinese paper is right, and we're going to have this year at least a handful of computers with many hundreds of qubits, and, and IBM and others have said over a thousand qubits this year. So we're going to have the 372 qubit computer to test the Chinese theory this year. We're going to find out. And if that Chinese theory is right, then the quantum reckoning is happening this year. And let me say, if this occurs, this is going to induce a lot of wide-scale panic because it means that one or more people are immediately going to have the capability to read the secrets protected by traditional encryption. I mean, your banking system, your credit card, the way we log in, <laughs> your multi-factor authentication. There literally is almost no system that will not be impacted by this. So that's why I wrote the article. And let me say, when I wrote it, I started out super enthused. I talked to a lot of quantum experts that said, hey, there seems to be a, you know, a real possibility that this thing is right. I've since talked to a couple of people that said, I'm more critical. I'm not sure that it's going to work. If it doesn't work, it's going to be huge embarrassment for the Chinese people and Chinese government. You know, part of me says, I don't think they would have put this paper out there if they didn't think they had a solid background. You know, I have a feeling like the Chinese father would have said, no, if you can't put the paper out. But here's the weirder thing that really goes to the heart of some of this. If any other government had discovered a way to factor today's secrets a lot quicker, like the Chinese are claiming here, it would have been top secret. Like if an American had discovered that, it would have been like out of the Hollywood movies. This guy would have been sucked up into a black SUV and helicopter, taken to a military. I mean, imagine you're the guy that figures out how to read all the world's secrets. There literally are dozens of movies where that guy, when they invent that guy in the movie, that guy is killed. <laughs> he's kidnapped or killed. Like there's no way that that wouldn't be the most protected secret in any government. So the question is, if China has learned how to break everybody's secret this year, why did they tell everybody? China is trying to get sufficiently capable quantum computers and they want to read American secrets and Russian secrets. And all. This. Why would they tell everybody in a public white paper? So in the quantum world, in the post-quantum world and stuff like that, this has been a huge, you know, huge debate, huge point of conversation. We're all excited and we're all very excited to see where it ends up. And we're going to know this year. And it's either going to be China with egg on their face or it's going to be, oh, my God, we all have to upgrade our devices immediately. And there's going to be a huge Y2K thing and every company will be spending a ton of money trying to fix their software and their devices. Oh, I forgot to mention this. The Chinese solution is based upon more quickly solving what's called lattice-based math. NIST recently, a couple months ago, released the new NIST post-quantum encryption standards. They're all based on lattices. <laughs> so if the Chinese paper is correct, it not only means they're breaking traditional asymmetric encryption pretty badly, but 
that they've broken the new standards NIST just selected as the ones we're supposed to use to protect ourselves against quantum attacks. <laughs> Although NIST is aware that lattices, like NIST has been aware that our, all of our post-quantum standards, are, or most of them, are, are based on lattices, and they actually extended the post-quantum cryptography contest to another round, encouraged people to come up with non-lattice-based post-quantum cryptography because they understood that if somebody was able to break lattice-based encryption, then it would cause a problem all at once. I've been a crypto hobbyist for three decades. It's never been more exciting than it has been in the last year. And that's not necessarily a good thing in the cryptography world, right? They like things to be slow and attacks to slowly come out. All of a sudden, we've got these revolutionary, not evolutionary ideas. It's quite the buzz, quite exciting to be in the cryptography world right now. Yeah, it's very exciting. And I, I guess it's always helpful when you give a nice thorough run through of everything because I am more like the general American population where I don't, I wouldn't be able, I, I guess I'd be able now to, to speak to someone if they came up to me on the street about a little bit about quantum, but most of my quantum reading has been quantum computing for babies, <laughs> which I read with my, with that, which I read with my son. <laughs> and I will say it's one of his favorite board books out of, I mean, he has hot, like almost probably dozens, if not a hundred books and he does really enjoy that one so maybe he'll be a future guy getting sucked into a black truck and figuring out some secret top secret stuff we can only hope yeah you uh, mentioned that book to me i bought it for my granddaughter and grandsons and i hear they love it as well so thank you for introducing that book what, what's the title of it do you remember it's literally quantum computing for babies that this guy chris ferry i think i'm saying his name right he is an author of all these various baby books that are kind of STEM, I, I guess, uh, related. And he'll, he, has, like Jamie, has quantum physics and all these different topics, organic chemistry, and they just kind of reduce it down, which is fun. But it's cool. I, I really enjoy them. And it seems like babies like them too. So just wonderful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so last topic for us, which is not that that wasn't fun, but this one is just particularly fun, but also a little odd to, to uh, you know, once we get into it, but you shared an article on LinkedIn from the MIT Technology Review, which was titled, A Roomba Recorded a Woman on the Toilet. How did screenshots end up on Facebook? So not fun necessarily, but just like interesting and just like, what? This hat, like a Roomba is taking a picture of a woman on the toilet? What? And I went to the article and I saw the pictures and I, I don't have a Roomba, but I guess if I did have a Roomba, perhaps, and I'm not victim shaming, but perhaps I would not let it in the bathroom with me. But then also, I guess I just wouldn't realize it's taking pictures either. I didn't know that they did that. For some reason, I thought you mapped them around your house or something, but I guess they identify various things like cabinets and, you know, obstacles that they would encounter to, to try and steer clear of them. But I'd love for you to just take us through this story because it was interesting to me. Yeah, you know, when I first saw the story I, I, and I, I saw the picture of this lady on a toilet with her pants down, I, I kind of panicked. Went, what? Because I got a, a Roomba, Roomba, or I've had them. I was saying, you know, just like you, what? They can take pictures? What? She let it in her bathroom? Well, it turns out that apparently, according to who is it, Google or Amazon, whoever owns them today, because it got bought by some big three technology company, it's just experimental Roombas and the people that it's apparently taking, I think the article said at least two people have had compromising pictures taken of them. 
can you imagine like your vacuum cleaner maybe coming around while you're having sex with your husband <laughs> or something and they're just fixing you know there's porn but what it turns out it apparently everybody that has that sort of vacuum cleaner has signed off ahead of time i think they called, said paid influencers and testing people or something it was kind of weird so it turns out it's not every Roomba, not every Roomba apparently is capable of it, but really what it led me down is a wormhole of it's kind of the future, right? Like our privacy is being invaded in so, so many ways. When people go, oh, should we have privacy? Should we have it? I mean, I'm a strong privacy advocate. It's gone. It's gone. And it seems like the average human being to get any feature will accept anything and they'll sign any end user license agreement. So it wasn't so much what's going on now. It was new to see the capability and you're like, what? Roombas are going to be able to take pictures? Blah, blah. Of course, that's the future of our lives is having all of these devices with that capability. I mean, we all have cell phones and I think we've all butt dialed somebody. We probably all accidentally said something bad about somebody while we butt dialed somebody. <laughs> you know, we've all probably sent emails to someone we really didn't mean to send. We we're trying to talk bad about the person and accidentally send it to the person. I, I did, although as best as I know, it was like 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, that's kind of the future. That's where I took this is like, oh, the future for your son is this house that is fully photo capable, video capable. It's the refrigerator, the toaster. The I mean, if your vacuum cleaner has video capability, what isn't? going to have video capability. And they're going to say, oh, it's this feature. So like, if we recognize you're coming up to your refrigerator, we'll be able to tell you, you know, what's your calorie that you should be drinking Diet Coke versus juice today because your sugar's up or, you know, like it's just going to seep into our lives. That's what I took away from this. It's not so much that article. It was just the future of our life is really this lack of privacy. And you keep hearing that everybody's going to push back. And I, I have to hope for the next generation that they're going to push back. But right now, it's the opposite. It's just growing and growing and growing. And there's there's good features, right? If someone tries to murder or kill you these days, there's a good chance there's some device that records it. I remember, and I think you and I talked about some lady got murdered and they were able to prove her exact time of death because her Apple Watch, I think it was at the time, detected her pulse going to zero and they're able to indict the father-in-law because he was there during that time. You know, I think I've read at least a couple of occasions where the Amazon Echo device heard someone ask for help or a murder going on and police got notified. I mean, that's just the future of our lives is that we're going to have more and more devices capable of filming us, photographing us, listening to us. You know, we're going to welcome them into our homes. You know, it's definitely a strange world. And I, I hope for our kids and grandkids that there's some pushback. There are pockets of people pushing back, but it's a interesting world about, you know, how we can be filmed and taped and what's private and what's not private. What do you think, Hillary? So I, I looked through the the pictures on that MIT technology review article and what I found really interesting in addition to everything you just covered was just the, the, the capability of the AI, because it showed the, the screenshots of where the Roomba is identifying the different objects, like I mentioned earlier, like it it's looking up and it sees like, okay, cabinets, and it's like putting a square around that cabinet. And oh, okay, that's an HVAC unit. I'm like, like most people could walk around their home and not know the, you know, the names of all those things. But this <laughs> thing's like driving around, looking around like a total little robot, which it is. I know that. But it's like and it's like identifying things and it's logging it. And it's like, oh, OK, like 
that cabinet's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like, I know that's the point, but it's still just like, I don't know. You just kind of carry on day to day and you're just like, oh yeah, AI is a thing. It's out there, whatever, machine learning, cool, blah, blah, blah. But then I go, I guess when you see that and it's just like a very basic example of what we all experience on the day to day, it kind of puts it in perspective, I guess, if that makes any sense. I'm just like, oh wow, like that's serious. Like it's not just this like, you know, thing that doesn't really have anything related you know, to do with us. It's like, in our lives, like you're saying, it's there. And I have an echo and I'm sure it listens to me and I'm sure it catalogs whatever stuff I say that I maybe shouldn't. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. That That's what was, what really stood out to me. And I guess I just wouldn't let it in the bathroom with me that that would be my thing. And I guess I know that now for the future. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That was my takeaway. I think it's the realization of what's going on with all of the technology is it's been slow in coming. Mm-hmm. And then it's also when it does happen, all the promises, it seems to happen quick. I mean, that yeah. happened with the internet. Now it's happening with AI. We've heard all these promises about where AI and then, you know, the home automation stuff. And it really, it brings up some really good questions, you know, and let me say again, I, I, I think that the future is that even if you say, well, I'm not going to allow it in my bathroom. <laughs> Maybe that's you, but they're going to have, you know, there's going to be some bathroom feature, you know, your bathroom mirror will tell you whether or not, you know, it's going to take pictures of you and tell you if you got skin blemishes or whether you need to take a particular vitamin. And so I think we're just going to have more and more of these devices that are constantly surveilling us all the time. And we're being surveilled all the time when, even when you don't realize that, you know, it's just going to get worse and it's going to be an interesting world. And hopefully our kids and grandkids navigate that world and try to keep some semblance of privacy. Let me say, it's probably not insane to think that one day, you know, people don't care that there's a robot in their bathroom like you <laughs> yeah. do today because it, it's such a difference. But in the future, they're probably going to let their humanoid robot <laughs> you know, come into the bathroom and, you know, I don't know. It, 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 it's going to be different. I think you and I are aghast because we're like, we're not used to robots taking pictures of us on the toilet. In the future, maybe that's just a normal thing. You know, someone even said that, that we're being surveilled through our social media and other things. Like, you know, they know where we are, where our location are, and they sell it to people. We would have never allowed this 20, 30 years ago. They would have put those companies out of business. And today, it's just what happens. True. It's true. We get used to things. That's it. That's it. Changing technology. And, you know, right. You can put this Roger Grimes predicts one day we're all going to be have a picture of us by sitting on the floor. Uh, we're basically like, you know, that term like boil the frog. You know, basically, we're all just like little frogs yeah. being boiled, just getting totally desensitized yeah, yeah. to all this. So, well, at least those people were consenting. At least that is something we can feel a bit better about. But, um, and all the encryption protecting those private videos, you know, might be broken this year. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Roger, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for walking us through quantum and that potential break, even though I, I too, am very curious why China would so publicly share it with everyone since there is this worldwide quantum race. But anyway, and then thanks for taking us through the Roomba that recorded a woman on the toilet. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening and welcome to the new year. Thanks, Roger. I'm Hilary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Know Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering.